and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today, today is another episode of Bleak House. We are doing serials 9 through 12. This is episode 3A. There's a 3B coming out which is the more informal portion of this series where I talk about different quotes and little pieces of these four serials that I particularly was drawn to or liked. This episode is the more formal episode of the two where we go over important plot points and touch points of these serials. Also, apologies for this echo. Hopefully y'all can forgive me and ignore the echo for this episode. Serial 9, Chapter 26, Sharpshooters, Omniscient Narration. So we're going to start out here on page 352 in the Barnes & Noble Classics edition of this text. And on 352, I'm just going to read the beginning of this batch of serials that we're doing. Quote, Wintry morning, looking with dull eyes and sallow face upon the neighborhood of Leicester Square, finds its inhabitants unwilling to get out of bed. Many of them are not so early risers at the brightest of times, being birds of night who roost when the sun is high and are wide awake and keen for prey when the stars shine out. Behind dingy blind and curtain, an upper story and garret, skulking more or less under false names, false hair, false titles, false jewelry, and false histories, a colony of brigades lie in their first sleep. Unquote. So we have this really interesting entry, and it's this ominous yet equally as familiar beginning to a chapter section. And I wanted to bring this particular portion up because it reminds me deeply of my thesis from the last batch of episodes, episodes 2A, B, and C from Bleak House, which is that this is a cyclic novel. There is so much that comes up again and again. For example, the Esther's narrative chapters. I know, of course, that Dickens did not name these chapters particularly, but Nevertheless, there's this cyclic nature with the narrations, with the scenery, with these chapter headings that keeps coming up again and again, and this gloomy entry is no exception. We also have this uh, bird's eye view, which is definitely another thing that's cyclic about this novel, is this omniscient narrator going from the farthest zoom point out there and then zooming in to a more specific view. And so we have these people under false names and all these false things. <laughs> it reminds me quite a bit of the premise of the book from the first batch of episodes that we did, talking about how Dickens is almost caricaturing everything in the book. He's connecting not only all of the characters to the Court of Chancery and Chancery in general, but he's also wanting to bring out very specific heightened traits in all of these characters. So he's going to really emphasize all the, all the falsity and the 
preposterousness of this group of people that we're zooming in on right at the outset here just in an act of further characterization. So we actually started on a bit of a different landing point than you might suspect from that introduction. We start with Mr. George, who is the ex-soldier who was training Richard when Richard was trying to be a soldier. He's no lawyer. And Phil, Mr. George's assistant, and they're at the shooting gallery, and it's essentially their morning routine. Mr. George gets up, Phil gets up, and they have breakfast together. And it's kind of a touching scene with some dialogue before there is a visit from old Mr. Smallweed and company. I know his granddaughter Judy is also with him. And Smallweed comes there on the pretense that he thinks that Mr. George will do whatever he wants because Mr. George owes him money. And so Mr. Smallweed is going to ask if Mr. George has a sample of someone named Captain Hodding's handwriting, which Tolkienhorn, the lawyer, the sophisticated <laughs> figure at the helm of the Deadlock estate needs. So Mr. George, in fact, does have a copy of Hodden's handwriting. Mr. Smallweed's presumption is correct, but Mr. George is more hesitant than Mr. Smallweed anticipates. So Mr. George visits Tolkienhorn at his offices with the Smallweeds, and they have this little bit of a back and forth about Mr. George doesn't want to do this exchange on principle, and he's not really thinking about the fact that he owes Smallweed money. Chapter 27, More Old Soldiers Than One. So Mr. George says no, I think very predictably to the Tolkien Horn Smallweed transaction. He goes to his best friend, Matt Bagnet's house anyway, to get some advice, essentially from Bagnet's wife, <laughs> Matt Bagnet, defaults in all things to his wife, and so he ends up getting this advice through Matt's wife, <laughs> and so Miss B Mrs. Bagnet, of course I would say also, advises to stay out of the affair, Mr. George agrees, and he tells Tolkienhorn that day, and on the way out, just for good measure, Mr. Tolkienhorn insults Mr. George and his friends including, I should say, Gridley, who dies in the last batch of cereals. Chapter 28, The Iron Master. So we are back with the Leicester Dudlocks. Sir Leicester Dudlock is back on his legs. As you'll remember from last time, the last couple cereals, he has been in bed from the gout, uh, which is the family curse, and that has allowed Lady Deadlock to trapeze around as she pleases doing her mysterious errands. And so Mr. Leicester Deadlock, Sir Leicester Deadlock, is back on his legs and he is entertaining these cousins of his that his fortune supports. So he has these cousins who are described in a way as being too attached or almost inconvenient in that sense. They're not particularly interesting or noble people, it seems, and so he entertains them because he supports them. One such 
cousin is Volumnia Deadlock, and I love the name Volumnia. It's very telling, and Dickens, as we know, writes names and creates names that are very expressive of characters. For example, Mr. Bagnet is a musician. Bagnet is very much like a name of a musical instrument. Volumnia, you can only imagine sort of a drama queen, someone who butts into business that isn't her own. And she's presented as this kind of miserable figure who has these habits that Sir Leicester Dudlock can't really stand, and yet family. She is constant, constantly supported by uh, the Dedlock's fortune. While they're entertaining all of these guests in this room of the house, I imagine the drawing room, Mr. Rouncewell, who is the housekeeper's son, Mrs. Rouncewell, as you'll remember, is the old housekeeper of Chesney Wald in this old country house that they have that they go summer in and Mr. Rouncewell, her only surviving son, the older of her two boys, her younger boy died, uh, he was a soldier. Mr. Rouncewell comes in and he asks if he can essentially take Rosa's hand in marriage on behalf of his son. The way that he does that though is really interesting. He comes in, he says, my son would like to marry Rosa who is Lady Dedlock's beautiful lady servant. And he says, I need her to have a better station in life or a better start. So I'd like to take her away to be educated before she marries my son. And of course, this is kind of a an assumptive ask here for this particular character to assume this position of asking, can I take one of your servants away so that I can educate them and then marry them to my son? In any case, there's a touching moment with when Lady Dedlock comes up to Rosa in, in her chambers and she says, what do you wanna do? And she has this very almost vulnerable moment with Rosa that we really haven't seen Lady Deadlock in this kind of position before. And the answer in short is no. They refuse Mr. Rouncewell's offer, at least for now. Chapter 29, The Young Man. So Sir Lady Leicester Deadlock, Lady Deadlock as well, they go back to their other estate and Chesney Wald is shut up for the winter. Guppy visits Lady Dedlock at this city estate and he essentially goes and starts recounting this very damning evidence to Lady Dedlock and it emerges that he wants to connect Esther with Lady Dedlock with the suit, with the, with the court case, with Jarndyce and Jarndyce. I'm getting flustered here, this is getting good. He wants to connect Esther with Lady Dadlock, thereby connecting her with Jarndyce and Jarndyce, thereby connecting her, I shall say, with uh, this kind of mystery or attraction of wealth. And he does this supposedly so he would have further grounds or firmer grounds for his proposal of marriage. Very interesting. This does not turn out the way that you would expect with Guppy. And 
He first ends up getting the idea that Esther and Lady Dedlock are connected from Lady Dedlock's portrait. As you'll remember, he goes to tour Chesneywald at some point when the Leicester Dedlocks are out of the house and Mrs. Rouncewell gives them a tour and that's where we learn about the ghost walk for the first time. So he ends up staring at Lady Dedlock's portrait for a long time and the uncareful reader, I suppose, or the unadorned reader would think, oh, he's just admiring the portrait, but there's a mystery in this novel and indeed he was admiring the portrait because he starts to realize that's evidence for Esther's connection to Lady Dedlock. So Esther, or Guppy rather, has figured it out, it out essentially. Esther is really Esther Hawden. Nemo is Hawden, probably. Mr. George, who we know through Mr. John Jarndyce, Cousin John, knew Hawden, which Guppy also somehow figures out. And we have this small weed talking horn affair from chapter 26 that we're dealing with. So Guppy somehow figures out this whole collection of evidence and he gets farther than we do in some, in some senses. And so he is needing letters to connect Hawden to Lady Deadlock and he supposedly will have them. So he says he will return to Lady Deadlock with the letters from Hawden as evidence. I now read from page 395. And this is Lady Deadlock talking. Quote, oh, my child, my child, not dead in the first hours of her life as my cruel sister told me, but sternly nurtured by her after she had renounced me and my name. Oh, child, oh, child. Or, oh, my child, rather, oh, my child. Unquote. End of serial nine. So, wow, <laughs> we have this big reveal that Lady Deadlock has presumed her child to be dead this whole time, and her somewhat wicked sister has took the child to raise her and then obviously died and so this whole time Lady Deadlock has not been able to see or even know about her child because of this sister figure. She had literally presumed Esther dead until this moment. What an interesting role Guppy has there. And in any case, Serial 10 chapter 30 Esther's narrative. This is, of course, Esther's first-person narration. So we're back with Esther at Bleak House with Cousin John and Ada and Charlie, who is Esther's little maid. Mrs. Woodcourt, the mother of the doctor who Esther comments on quite a bit and is Miss Flight's doctor. Miss Flight is the old lady at the courthouse who visits every day. Mrs. Woodcourt stays with Esther at Bleak House. It's when the mother is visiting that she realizes that Mr. Woodcourt has this old Welsh wealth and nobility track record. Though he's fickle in his relationships, he likes to lead young ladies on. Mrs. Woodcourt, meanwhile, predicts that Esther will marry a richer, older man and be very happy with him. What a good fortune, comments Esther. 
We also in this chapter get a visit from Caddy Jellybee who is to be married in a month's time. She ends up striking a, an arrangement with Esther, which Esther comes up with herself, where Caddy stays at Bleak House for three weeks to learn the housekeeping ropes, to learn a couple of new skills before she goes into this marriage, and then Esther accompanies Caddy to prepare the Jellybee House in London for the wedding, so that takes a week, thereby making the month, and Caddy gets married and it's a there's a really interesting scene that we won't get to go over in the second episode but it's worth a revisit if you have are reading along with it or just want to hear about it there's a scene where they're all at breakfast together and it's kind of a catastrophic affair there's old mr turbydrop of course the young couple uh cousin john there's uh pee -pee, <laughs> little uh caddy's younger brother who's essentially a toddler, the way it sounds. Esther and Ada and the Jellybee parents, and they're all at breakfast together, and it's just this raucous affair with these other patrons, and they're throwing essentially bits of irreverent conversation back and forth, and it's all nonsense and it's all preposterous and Cousin John is, in Esther's eyes, of course, the saving grace of this breakfast and it's just a hilarious scene. It brings up a lot of Dickens' characteristic humor that he writes in from a lot of his earlier works and it's just wonderful. I would recommend that. Chapter 31, Nurse and Patient. So Jenny, the brickmaker's wife, returns to the area near Bleak House with Joe, who is ill. Esther and Charlie end up taking Joe back to Bleak House, hopefully to nourish him, and they decide to keep him just for the night so that he can sleep at least in a bed for a little bit, and he ends up escaping in the middle of the night. Charlie then, who has been his attendant this whole time, falls ill and Esther nurses her back to health and there's this whole period of self-isolation that they go through from their other family members, especially Cousin John and Ada. And then at the end of this chapter, Esther falls very ill with the same illness. Chapter 32, The Appointed Time omniscient narration. So we're back at Lincoln's Inn. This is where Crook lives, this is where Snagsby is, and we're looking in on our bird's eye view here on people who live in the area like Mrs. Perkins and Mrs. Piper. These are all people who attended Nemo, aka potentially Hawden's funeral, in the town and they're gossiping as per usual. Joe Bling, aka Tony, aka Mr. Weevil, is waiting for someone or something. He ends up running into Snagsby, the law stationer, while he's there. Mrs. Snagsby, yes, is still suspicious of Mr. Snagsby. They could just have an open conversation and they don't. Not in this chapter, not in this group of serials. <laughs> and then after that conversation, Guppy appears, evidently 
who Tony was looking for. We realize at this point that the letters from Hodding slash Nemo are coming from Crook, who commandeered him after Hodding's death, and they're going to meet at midnight in order to retrieve the letters. So they wait in the room, and there's this interesting scene where Guppy is at the window because there's all these ashes dropping from somewhere onto his coat, and he is sitting on the windowsill and he puts his hand down, rests it down on the side of the building, and he comes up and there's this disgusting yellow goo that he has to wash his hands of. And we find out that when they go downstairs, Crook is not there, the letters are burned, and indeed he has spontaneously combusted. <laughs> That's right, Crook dies by spontaneous combustion. If you've heard anything about Bleak House, I'm sure it's the spontaneous combustion bit. I had not heard anything about Bleak House before reading it, and this was very interesting <laughs> to me. I was so surprised. I talk at length about this spontaneous combustion bit in the second episode, so look out for that later this week, and we can talk about this openly together, unlike Mr. and Mrs. Snagsby. <laughs> Serial 11, Chapter 33, Interlopers. So we're at the Soul's Arms, which is the bar across from, or the inn rather, across from Crook's apartments, and we're in the aftermath of the combustion. Mrs. Snagsby halfway confronts Mr. Snagsby. We're making progress in this regard. She comes into the bar, she's all angry, and she's like, Meh. and Mr. Snagsby and her leave. There really isn't much dialogue though, that's the disappointing bit. <laughs> the small weeds all arrive, all of them. Old, young, the brother and sister, the twins, and Mrs. Sna Mrs. Smallweed. Old Mrs. Smallweed, that is. And it turns out that Crook was old Mrs. Smallweed's brother, and that means that Crook's estate, his whole possessions, money, everything, belongs to the Smallweeds now. So Mr. Smallweed is going to commandeer the premises and all of his belongings and everything with the help of Mr. Tolkienhorn, meaning of course that Guppy can't really get in there and investigate these letters or anything else any further. Guppy ends up then going to Lady Deadlock and telling her that the letters have been destroyed and that he will not be taking possession of them. He ends up, there's this really interesting scene where he meets Mr. Tolkienhorn on the way out and they have this painful kind of sticky exchange and I hope to further find out in later serials how that exchange continues. Chapter 34, A Turn of the Screw. Of course, this name kind of reminds me of Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. Very interesting. 
Mr. Smallweed makes Mr. George's bill due. So it turns out that Mr. George has taken out a loan to pay for the shooting gallery and Mr. Smallweed in retaliation against Mr. George for not helping him out with Tolkienhorn has decided to make Mr. George's payment for that loan in full due immediately. And unfortunately, neither Mr. George nor Matt Bagnet, who co-signed on the loan, can pay the loan. Never co-sign on a loan, folks. That is just not the right move. And Matt Bagnet is has a painful couple hours because of this. So Mr. George and Mr. Bagnet, who ends up coming over with Mrs. Bagnet to the shooting gallery, are lamenting together. They, can't, they will just become ruined if this bill has to be paid right now. They both go to Mr. Smallweed and there's this horrifying scene where Mr. Smallweed takes the pipe that Mr. George likes to smoke when he visits the Smallweeds and he smashes it on the floor and he says, you see that? I'm gonna ruin you and I'm gonna crush you. And it's this like burst of vehemence that I was not for one expecting. So Mr. George and Mr. Bagnet go to Mr. Tolkienhorn instead. And there's this interesting scene that I talk about a bit in the second episode where Mrs. Rouncewell is leaving the office. And so they come in after her um, to Mr. Tolkienhorn's office. George ends up giving Tolkienhorn the Hodden letter for an extension of the loan and a removal of Bagnet's duty to pay the loan in case Mr. George cannot. So there's sort of a hold or a temporary removal on this co-signing business. Chapter 35, Esther's narrative, of course, Esther's first person narration. So Esther recovers from her illness slowly but surely. I did some reading into and this is probably smallpox that Joe and Charlie and Esther all got. We still don't know if Joe is alive by the way. My guess is maybe. <laughs> so Esther is fine. She is taking things quite slow as you can imagine. Cousin John ends up visiting her and he tells Esther that Richard has written to him essentially in disagreement of John Jarnus's wishes. Cousin John has asked Richard to hold off on his engagement with Ada and to break it off for the time being and they comply because Ada is still under his, she's still a ward of the court and theoretically, of John Darnus, so she pays attention to what he has to say. And Richard is saying, you know what, I still disagree with you in this period. <laughs> then Cousin John talks a bit about how he thinks that the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case and researching it so thoroughly has changed Richard for the worse, which we'll get into in further later chapters. Esther is sent and she's thinking about going to recover at Boythorn's house in Chesney Wall, right next to the Deadlock estate, as you'll remember. Miss Flight also comes to visit her while they're in the process of 
understanding when, when and where to visit. Miss Flight comes to visit Esther from London, and she ends up walking 20 miles from London the first time she visits Esther, which is astounding to me. I know it, it was a lot back then, but it wasn't so much as it is today. Oh my goodness, can you imagine walking 20 miles to see your friend? And then realizing she's sick and you have to go back home. Oh my goodness, so she takes a coach when they arrange to meet, by the way. And they, Miss Flight and Charlie, hear from Jenny, the brickmaker's wife, that a woman came and took Esther's handkerchief from Jenny, which of course by her description is Lady Deadlock, the very same woman who begs Joe to take her to the law stationers and to Kirk's building and to the grave very same description. She takes the handkerchief that Esther laid on uh, Jenny's dead baby and she leaves in its place a coin and flits away. Miss Flight gives a short history of her family and how they all slowly fell into ruin in the process of spectating the chancery suit, Jarndyce and Jarndyce of course, and also how Gridley established these same symptoms while he was watching the case, and she's seeing the same signs in Richard. So we get a lot in a short amount of time about Richard's current downfall. She also gives news of a one Mr. Woodcourt, the doctor, who is her doctor. He evidently single-handedly saved a group of shipwrecked people. So he was on a ship and it ended up getting wrecked and he was the big hero of the whole affair. He was taking care of people, burying the dead, foraging for food, all of this. So he's this big hero now, very honorable. And Miss Flight says that she, or that Mr. Woodcourt rather should be knighted. And Esther gives this, there's many points within this chapter when Esther is concerned about her complexion and when you had smallpox back in the day, it scarred you, and so there's significant scarring that happens on the face especially, and Esther has this very sad moment where she realizes that she's happy that Mr. Woodcourt left without proposing, as she supposed that he might, because she is irrevocably changed at this point. Serial 12, Chapter 36, Chesney Wald. Esther and Charlie go to Boythorn's house and he has left his bird there, which I think is such a weird detail. It's like this bird is an extension of his gay uh, and ha rather happy uh, disposition. And so the fact that he leaves his bird there is like the ultimate welcoming sign. Esther muses again about how she's kept Woodcourt's flowers. She keeps thinking about Woodcourt periodically and about the scarring as well. And as she's recovering, she goes a lot outside. That's the point of going to the country, isn't it? And Lady Dedlock approaches her while Esther is outside hanging out. And she approaches Esther with the very same handkerchief that we were just discussing from Jenny. So Lady Dedlock confesses all. She is indeed Esther's mother. And there's also a letter that Esther reads from Lady Dedlock at the end of this chapter. 
And Lady Dudlock asks for complete secrecy after this one meeting that they get to have. And she asks Esther to burn the letter after this and to just not think about it. And so the truth behind Esther's history is that Esther was laid aside at birth as dead and this aunt of hers brought her up without Lady Dedlock's knowledge, so she evidently saw signs of life within the baby and brought her up and then died and never told Lady Dedlock, her mother, about Esther. And at the end of this uh, chapter, rather, Esther is reunited with Ada. So there's lots happening on the whole in this chapter and there's a lot more detail to Esther's background that y'all can go back and read yourselves. Chapter 37, Jarndyce and Jarndyce. So Esther at her stay at Boythorn's estate gets called to the Deadlock Arms by the innkeeper Mr. Grubble and ends up being a call really from Richard and Skimpole though. Skimpole, you'll remember, is the childish figure that hangs on to Cousin John like a leech Richard is making progress on Jarndyce and Jarndyce, supposedly. This is dubious because Richard is ever optimistic and he's also ever after the promise of money from the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case. And as we know, many, many people have been born into, married in and out of, and died out of this court case. So it's a court case that's been going on for a long time without resolution how likely it is that Richard is the one genius that comes and solves this particular case, I'm not sure. In any case, he tells Esther himself of this disagreement and his letter to Cousin John over Ada and his engagement. And he has this more serious disposition than he's ever had and the way that he talks even is quite different and so I took this as a sign that it really is, there's a marked change in Richard that I think is for the worse, at least in the short term. And he's also in debt again. That's another bad thing that comes out in the course of this meeting. Esther, I don't know why she does this, but she ends up appealing to Skimpole to convince Richard to give up the court case and to essentially pursue the profession more honorably, and of course this comes to no avail. Does she know Skimpole? Has she been giving us these observations the whole time? Seems like yes, but like what? why would you appeal to literally the child, the person who thwarts responsibility at every opportunity and laughs in responsibility's face? In any case, of course this has no result. I'm not sure what is going on with Skimpole's inclusion, other than, of course, the reason why I'm annoyed is good. It's the reason behind why I'm annoyed, rather. This is very masterfully done by Dickens. Dickens, of course, wants Skimpole to be annoying <laughs> in the sense that it's this overt characterization and caricaturization of all of these characters. So. The fact that I'm annoyed is actually good and serves the plot and the characterization of the novel. The party while they're out walking, so Richard Skimpole, Esther, Charlie, et al, 
they run into voles, which is spelled V-holes. I'm not sure what the etymology of this name is. I'd be interested to know. That's something you could comment if you want to comment on this episode. And Voles says that Johnson & Johnson is up for a hearing on the morrow. So Richard runs back to London. He doesn't give it a second thought. He runs back on a late coach to London. Chapter 38, A Struggle. So Esther, well, finally, and back at Bleak House, takes up her housekeeping obligations again. After a time, she goes to London. Patty is doing well. This is after her marriage, of course, and she's learning music and dancing, and she has this real sense of purpose for the first time. It's a crooked domestic picture, however, because she is working herself to death now on behalf of the old Mr. Turveydrop, the figure of deportment, as you'll remember, and so there's this really odd juxtaposition between Caddy's newfound happiness and sense of purpose and also this tragedy of the situation that her and her new husband are in. Esther visits Mr. Guppy with this pretense of renewing her lack of an engagement with him but really it's to ask him to stop researching her past. She says, I know about my past now Please stop butting into it if you are butting into it. And I have to admire the foresight of Esther here because the when Guppy told her that he was had, that he was in, investigating some information on her behalf, it was a long time ago and it's easy to gloss over those quick comments especially in an emotionally thick moment like the engagement scene. However, she says I need you to stop and I need you to stop. Essentially, the subtext of this is I need you to stop bothering Lady Deadlock. And again, the foresight is incredible, especially because of the dramatic irony here. We know a lot more than Esther knows at this point about Guppy's progress on this affair. And so when Guppy's behavior projects all of the progress that he's made, yes, it's very awkward, but also very engaging. So Esther leaves in a state of trustworthiness that she trusts Guppy to not butt into her business any longer, but Guppy's behavior is troubled and it's caricatured in the sense that he goes to and from the house. He's going from the walk uh, up to the house to the back to the house and then up and back and up and back. The word that Dickens uses in this last page is oscillation and he's going up and back up and back and saying oh of course I will not butt into your business anymore of course I will do x y and z and it's this very condemning picture almost of Guppy's guilt from what he's been doing with his newfound sense that he needs to stop doing what he's been doing in researching Esther's past. Alright, that is all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this third part of Bleak House. We are now officially an over halfway done with the novel, which is super exciting, and we will be finishing the novel for sure this summer, so look forward to the next few episodes on that. 
We are also renaming our podcast on August 1st, so look out on the website on everything to be updated on the name. I'm super excited. The name is shorter. It is better. It is way more rememberable than the last, the current name, DH and I. And I'm super excited to start this next chapter of podcasting and of looking at literature with you all. Thank you so much for your time and your attention, and I'll see you all later this week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.